Welcome to Flashpoint, the Fire Inside podcast. Featuring leadership and team building principles designed to ignite your inner fire and help you reach your full potential. On our program, you will learn from professional athletes, military and business experts, inspirational figures, leaders in the fire service, and other top achievers who have reached the pinnacle of success in their chosen fields. And now your host, international speaker and best-selling author, Frank Viscuso. It's go time with JP Donnell. Yeah. And I am excited. I'm so excited to have you on JP and thank you for making time to, to talk with us. And what I want to do is I want to start with your journey, uh, really starting with when you decided you wanted to be a Navy SEAL. You were about 18 years old when you walked into a recruiter's office, right? Yes, sir. When I decided I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, I was probably, I mean, anywhere between the seven, eight, nine year old range. Uh, my brother and I, we had watched a documentary of the SEAL teams from the Vietnam era. And uh, my brother Corey and I just completely fell in love with the, the SEAL teams. And it was any, any piece of information that we could get on the SEAL teams, we were reading, we were watching, we were listening to it. Uh, I mean, we were completely infatuated with it. We would go to garage sales and talk to the Vietnam vets and we would buy their old gear if they were selling it. Right. And then we would sit and talk with them and we'd ask them questions like, Hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL. Do you know anything about Navy SEALs? And you know, these older guys, they would just laugh. And of course, none of them were Navy SEALs and, you know, um, but they would tell us stories about what they knew about the SEAL teams and we would just sit and listen. And, you know, um, it was, it was, it was really cool to have that exposure as a young boy because I think it helped kind of keep us focused on uh, a really cool goal. That That is awesome. It, one of the stories I heard you tell was that when you went into talk to a recruiter and I think they said our wannabe Navy SEAL recruiters not here. Um, yeah, that pissed me off. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it did. But you talked about how your father helped prepare you that summer. And what did he do exactly? Yeah, so my, my, my mom and dad, both my parents always instilled into us just a mindset of just absolutely working as hard as you can. Like, and it doesn't matter what the environment is. It doesn't matter what the job is. It doesn't matter if it's something that you don't want to be doing. If you have the opportunity to work, you work hard. And so that's why when I went into that recruiter's office and they all kind of laughed when I told them I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, you know, that pissed me off. And then they told me, well, hey, we can't do anything with that cast on your hand. And the Navy SEAL wannabe recruiter won't be back until Thursday. I was like, okay. And that whole wannabe thing kind of pushed me. And, you know, my, 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 in addition to the hard work, my parents always taught us, like, if you want something, you have to go out there and work to go get it. And you don't allow another human being to dictate what you can and can't do in life. Like mm -hmm. nobody has a right to tell you what you can do and what you can't do. And so that mindset had always been instilled in. So when somebody would try to say, well, you shouldn't do that or you can't do that, it had the opposite effect on my brother, my sister, and, and I, because we'd be like, really? Well, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, my mm -hmm. sister just became a doctor. And for years, people told her, you shouldn't do that. It's, it's going to be way too hard. You're a single mom, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, the stats of single moms being able to make this happen and be successful. And for people to say that to Sarah, she was like, okay, watch this. And guess what? Now she's a doctor and she got her and she was going uh, for neurosurgery. And, but this is what's crazy about my sister is neurosurgery for her, that was going to be too boring because it would be the same type of thing over and over. And so she wanted general trauma surgery so she could be challenged every single day. And she just got her number one pick for five years of residency. And that's how well she did with all of her stuff. And so that's always been ingrained into us. And so that summer that I was going to be working in construction with my dad before I left from the military, you know, my dad pushed me mentally and physically past my limits. 
every single day because he knew that if I wanted to become a Navy SEAL, that I was going to have to be at a different state of mind. Now, my uncle, who uh, we were very close with, um, you know, he had some friends that he was a cop, that he was cops with, that, you know, used to be SEALs or new SEALs, and they had a little bit of insight, right? And so they told him, like, what the training program was going to be like. My other uncle was a PJ in the Air Force, so he was Air Force Special Forces. He had been doing that for years he was a t1 a tier one pj he had worked with the seal teams and delta and rangers and guys all you know and he'd worked with all the top level special forces and so he had kind of given us some insight and gave my parents some insight as well in regards to hey this is his mindset's going to be this is what the training is going to have to be like and so that summer um you know for my dad pushing me doing construction was the absolute best thing that anybody ever could have done for me. Um, That's great. And, you know, it, it was cool because we, we cut my cast off um, because I told them about what the recruiters told me and how I couldn't even go into the Navy with the cast on and I really wanted to go. And my dad was like, awesome, because he knew, he knew the route that I was going. You know, I had a, I'd gotten a street bike my senior year of high school. I was starting to kind of party. I had run from the cops a couple times on my street bike and my dad knew about it because he heard me and my buddies joking and talking about it. You know, he just, he saw what was getting ready to develop and he just didn't want me to go down that path. And that was, that was absolutely a path that someone like myself would have gone down quick because I was just driven by that. It was like that adrenaline rush and you know, Hey, the military, military is going to take care of that, especially in the SEAL teams. And so mm-hmm. that challenge that I needed from the military, my dad just knew what he needed to do. And there was times where I would be so mad. I'd be in tears, mad with my dad that summer because of how, what he was doing and how he's pushing me. But when I got in the military, or even when I got in a boot camp, I was able to immediately think back my, I'm very thankful. I'm, you know, and maybe boot camp's not hard, but I just, I recognized that mindset that my dad had already started to instill into me was the most important part. The physical part, I was a, I was a really good athlete. I was in really good shape, um, you know, and that wasn't going to be an issue for me. It was the mental side. And my dad knew that most young guys don't make it through training because they're not mentally prepared for that portion of their life yet. You know, I like what you said a little bit earlier, you kind of alluded to this concept of if you ever lose your will to fight, somebody who has the will to fight will control you because they're mentally and physically prepared. Yep. And, you know, we, we have uh, some, uh, many of our listeners, the majority of them right now are in the fire service, first responders, and there's some similarities, obviously, in what we do. And I've actually heard a Navy SEAL express it this way. Uh, He said, we both fight an enemy that can strike any time during the day or the night, an enemy that can hit us with an unknown size and intensity, an enemy that maneuvers rapidly, causing us to have to adapt, and an enemy that that we would have to rely on teamwork in order to defeat. Mm -hmm. But then he talked about the differences. And he said, to become a SEAL, obviously, you have a very strict selection process. That's the biggest thing. And then the other two things he mentioned were – the um, he talked about the training and how seals prepare obviously in the equipment. We have the equipment. Uh, I travel throughout the country talking to fire departments regularly. And I can tell you some departments train very effectively. Other ones do not train effectively. And it's, and it's easy to kind of tell if you just spend one day with them. Yeah. But I want to talk a little bit about that because in your industry, you don't want to seal that's not trained. You don't want someone that's immature. You don't want somebody that's not mentally or physically prepared because they're in charge of millions of dollars, millions of equipment in people's lives. We could say the same thing. So talk a little bit about the mindset and the training that a a person has to go through to become a Navy SEAL. Um, Yeah. I I mean, the mindset part of it is, it's something that they're looking for and you kind of weed yourself out going through that training. Um, you know, the military has invested millions and millions of dollars trying to find out like, Hey, who is the ideal 
candidate to be a Navy SEAL so that we can go find them and market to them and advertise to them. They still haven't figured it out for yeah. years. I mean, and this is not just like, hey, the last couple of years, I'm talking decades. Because you're talking about the, dr- the dropout ratio, right? Of people that sign up and don't make it through. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm trying, they're trying to figure out like, how do we find the ideal candidate that is going to become a Navy SEAL? They can't figure that out because you can't, you can't measure that unless you put somebody in that environment. And when you put somebody in buds in that hard environment with the cold water, the long hours, the hard physical evolutions, the evolutions that require teamwork in addition to individual output and instructors are evaluating and your peers are evaluating. And that's the other thing is we have peer evals constantly where you're ranking the class. And if you're continuously in the bottom rankings of those, you're gone. If you are always in the bottom, you're gone. It doesn't matter if you didn't quit. It doesn't and this matter. Is, this is your peers evaluating each other's? Yes. So, so, so if you're I guess, quit going through training and you screw over other guys and you, it's always what's best for you, if you're always right. getting back and you don't take care of the team gear and you immediately go to start taking care of your own personal gear or you immediately go take a mm-hmm. warm shower to try to heat up after a long like dive evolution where everybody is freezing cold, like to the bone cold. It takes hours to warm up after there's guys that would come back and they would go straight into the showers. Right. And you're like, we're like, we're trying to do it because they can sneak away. Right. Or, you know, just not hold your weight on, on the log PT or the boat PT. Right. Joke because guys will be doing boat PT. And then they think if they're doing this, it really looks like they're working hard. It's like floating hands don't work. It doesn't mean you're carrying anything. Mm. Because if I'm carrying the weight, if I'm if I have the lo- the load of that boat on my hands, it's going to be folding over, right? It's not yep. flat. It's not going to have the smooth. It's going to be folding over with that weight coming down on it. And so the guys that are carrying the weight, they're not able to do that. And so you'll see guys with the floating hands, like oh, like trying to act like they're putting out extra hard. It's like you're not carrying your weight, and guys notice that. And we rate each other off of that. And it's just like, just room inspections. And hey, if you're not actually carrying your weight on cleaning the room and getting it inspection ready, because you'd have guys where they would just be gone. And it, they'd be gone partying all weekend long. And they'd come back and the room inspection would be going down. And they know that the other people in the room are gonna make that room inspection ready because they don't wanna fail. So there's people that would take advantage of that. And it's just little things like that. And so people people notice that. And that's how we start to weed out the people that we know aren't gonna be team players. Um, and then the instructors obviously are gonna put us in hard situations where guys are gonna quit. Uh, but the, the thing is about, yeah, Bud is very difficult, but it's nothing compared to combat. It's out. It is nothing. You know, and if, and I know there's some seals out there that all they talk about is basic seal training buds. And they like have these stories from buds and like, that's what their whole thing is revolved around. That's, I mean, cool. Good. I mean, I guess people would like to hear that stuff, but that's not what it's about because the, the true test of, of a guy's mental toughness is, is combat is seeing their buddies, being shot and bleeding out and carrying a dead body out of the middle of the street and loading up a dead body of a soldier or a Marine that you've been working with for four to five months who became close like your brother and going out the next day and going and getting into a gunfight and actually knowing that what you're doing, your actions can get yourself or one of your teammates killed if you're lazy, if you're not disciplined, if you're not dialed in and uh, in the game as long as you should be. Combat is the ultimate test. Uh, SEAL training, I mean, it's just a selection program that we use to weed out the mentally weak. And we still Mm -hmm. lose guys in the SEAL teams. We get rid of guys in the SEAL teams that made it through BUDS, that made it through SQT, which is SEAL qualification training. It's the advanced training that we do to prepare guys for the SEAL teams. And so, boom, we'll do that. 
And then guys get into the SEAL teams and they think, oh, cool, I made it. I'm good, you know? And it, that's not the case. You're, you're a new guy. You have to start all over. You have a full workup. We do a full, you know, it's about an 18-month workup to prepare us for a six to nine month deployment, depending on what's going on at that time. And so, you know, guys will go to that workup and guys don't know how to balance their personal life. And, you know, the guys will miss out on training blocks because they have issues at home with their family or, you know, physically their body just can't keep going through it. Right. The workup in a SEAL team is, is, is hardcore. It is, it is hard on the body. It is hard on the mind. I mean, I think my first workup, and I loved it. I was young. So I was very fortunate. You know, I was young. My first platoon, I had a girlfriend. So whatever, like, I, I, you know, she, it, that didn't matter. Right? I didn't like my life didn't evolve around her. My life right. revolved around the SEAL teams. Now, when I got married, you know, to my, to my wife, you know, that mindset does shift and change. Um, you know, I was at that time in my career where it needed to, but my first platoon, I was gone. I think they told us the stats were, that first year we were gone over 230 days out of the year. And then we deployed for six, for almost seven months. Cause it worked out. Yeah. Oh no, that was just to Iraq. <clears throat> Before we deployed to Ramadi, we only had a 11 and a half month turnaround. Like I came back from my first deployment mm. to Iraq in, um, in, uh, it was April, 2005 and the end of April. And we left for Ramadi at the beginning of April of, uh, 2006. And so you know, we had 18 month workup into those 11 and a half months with pre-deployment and post-deployment leave. And, and you, I mean, first of all, you had a tremendous team. Leif Babin was the officer in charge of test unit bruiser, Charlie platoon. Yep. Uh, pe people are familiar with Chris Kyle, who was the point man, lead sniper, you, and he was the point man and lead sniper for Charlie platoon. You were basically his counterpart point man and yep. lead sniper for the Delta platoon, right? So you well, guys was, all knew each other pretty yep, well. I was, I was in Delta platoon. I went through SQT with Leif and Seth Stone, Seth Stone, um, and I went to SEAL Team 3 Delta Platoon. So we had done, Seth was my big brother in the SEAL Team. And Seth was Jocko's best friend. So if you guys have listened to Jocko's podcast, he would always talk about the Delta Platoon commander. And then yeah. Seth passed away. He didn't really talk about it for a while. And then podcast 160, it's actually letters that Jocko had written to Seth. And he was mm -hmm. reading them. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a powerful, powerful episode. Um, I actually text him like halfway through it. I'm like, Hey, thanks for the heads up asshole. I was driving <laughs> and had to pull over. And my wife was the same way. She was listening to that podcast that same day. She had to pull over cause she couldn't stop crying. I'm sitting there hearing these letters that Jocko had written to Seth and he's reading it out. I'm just like, I can't drive. Like, this is not, this is not safe. Right. Because I miss Seth so much. Seth was my big brother. He helped me become a young man in the SEAL teams. He was that guy that helped guide me and say, Hey, dad, no, don't do that, man. <laughs> Come on, man. Like you need to, you know, think about what you're doing or, Hey, you know, I understand that you're frustrated. He was there to always just talk to me and mentor me and help build me into a young man. Cause I was a kid. I mean, I graduated from, from training when I was 19 years old, checking into a SEAL team when I was 20-ish years old, you know? And so, right. you know, I, I, he just, 19, yeah, 19, 20 years old, and he helped me um, become that young man. And so Jocko came in as our task unit commander, and he revamped it. He renamed us. We were task unit Bravo. And we became Task Unit Bruiser. He just changed our name and he got that from, you know, Colonel Hackworth, um, you know, a guy that he had, he loved and met, you know, looked up to as a military leader. And so, you know, that was one thing that you want to do is you just change your name, kind of revamp the way we did things and uh, just reestablish our mindset. And, you know, and he sat us down as a Task Unit and said, hey, you know, what's going on overseas is changing. It's really bad. It's really bad in the area that we are trying to go to. The enemy that we're going to go up against is unlike anything that we've seen before. This workup is going to be different. 
we, we're going to take ownership of everything that affects our mission, everything that affects our ability to deploy, and we want to go to the worst area. And yeah. it, it was it was it was awesome to have a leader come in and just straight up tell us like, "Hey, it's really bad here. This is where we want to go, and this is how we're going to get there." Because what you have to understand is all the task units in the SEAL teams are competing to be the top ranked task unit and the top ranked task unit gets to go to the worst area. Like that's the reward. Like, Hey, the worst area, boom, you're the best. You're going there. And that's what we wanted to do. And Jocko knew that we had to work together. Jocko knew that he had to tell us the truth on how bad things were. And Jocko knew that we had to take ownership. We, we couldn't, we couldn't blame anybody. We couldn't make excuses. He, he took that away from us because usually, you know, if supply, I'm sure you've seen this in, in your career. Like if a department doesn't get you what you're supposed to have and it was their job to get it to you and you didn't get it in time, what do you do? We blame that department, right? Well, Hey, yeah. supply didn't get me the gear I needed. And that's just a normal thing, right? That's just a normal thing that people do. And it's big in the military. It's, it's, it's horrible in the SEAL teams, right? It's always like, well, blank supply, right? Like, you know, they know our lunch break is during this time. They're never around, blah, blah. There's this huge animosity, right? We're always fighting. And Jocko said, well, okay, why don't we alter what we do to cater to supplies timeframes? And if we didn't get the gear from supply, that's actually our fault because that means that we didn't explain to supply why we needed this mission critical piece of gear for training and when we needed it. And we didn't make sure that they understood clearly when we needed that piece of gear. So that's actually our fault. And guys would be like, okay. You know, and we're like, like, because when your leadership explains it to you that way, it's like, oh, mm, you know, because, and then the icing on the cake is Jocko would say, or Leif or Seth would say, hey, do you guys really think supply wants us to fail? And the answer is no. Right. They you know, and it's, it's so interesting that, that you got into all this, because I was actually going to ask you, how was Jocko different? And you explained all of that. And it's, and it's really cool because for people that are listening, and I can't imagine we have many of them, but for the people who are listening that aren't sure who is Jocko, who is Leif, who are we talking about? Uh, they're the authors of Extreme Ownership. And obviously, you know, their background now with the SEALs a little bit from this podcast. Um, but one of the things that you had said was you had changed your mindset from this, I have to do this to I get to do this. Was that something that was instilled by Jocko and the team? No, that, that actually was something that was instilled into me when I was going through training, when I was going through basic, it's going through buds. And, um, you know, it was just this realization of, I get to do this. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I apologize because I'm glad you brought this up because it's a very important thing. And I usually, I'll bring it up at some point in the podcast, but I usually bring it up during the buds section of when people want to talk about it. But like, like I was saying, like, yeah, buds is hard. It's difficult. You're cold. You're wet. You're tired. You're miserable. So what? Like you're going to find a way to get through that. If that's what you really want. That's what people don't understand. If you really want something, you will find a way to do it. You'll stop making mm. excuses. I talked at an event up in uh, St. Louis for a company called First Form. And a uh, great company, really good friends with the owners. And <clears throat> I was talking with the president of the company and, you know, somebody comes up and they're talking to us and they're like, hey, you know, I've been really just trying to, I can't remember the exact scenario. And I don't want to actually put it out there because I don't want to embarrass somebody. But anyway, so they're like, I just can't do this. I said, well, that's fine. And like my buddy kind of looked at me because that's not what he was expecting, right? He was expecting me to like have this. I was like, that's fine because you don't want to. Yeah. And if, if you really decide that this is something you actually want to do in your life, you're going to do it. So I would suggest you stop wasting energy on something that you actually don't want to do. And this guy just looked at me and he's like, shit. Okay. <laughs> I said, now if it's something that you want to do and you actually decide that you want to do that and you stop making excuses and you take ownership of your ability to get that done, then you'll, you'll actually start getting something done. 
And my buddy looked at me, he's like, do that, okay. I wasn't expecting that, right? And yeah. it just comes to the mindset of like, if you really want to, you'll, you'll get through it. And you'll in fun, the mindset of I get to do this helped build this is what I really want to do. I, I can, I put it on my kids. There is not one time going through training I ever thought about quitting. Not once. Because I wanted to do that more than anything in life. And I also looked at the other instructors and said, hey, you know, if they've done it, I can too. They're no better than me. I respect them, but they breathe the same oxygen I breathe. They're just older than me. They went through it at an earlier time. And it's the same thing I tell kids that are getting ready to go through SEAL training. I said, you know what? I did it. There's no reason why you can't. And all the other instructors, they did it. There's no reason why you can't. The, the difference is we actually want that suffering. We actually want that pain. Yeah. We actually want that discomfort because I thrive off of that. Because I know I'm doing what most other people mentally cannot do. It's the same thing when I did for for MMA fights. I did that because I enjoyed the camaraderie of being in the gym, of training hard, of sweating, of bleeding. Like I love that. Like I love that hard training. And then whenever I'd fight, it was a it was a big cut, and I liked that. My last fight, I cut I cut from two seventeen to one seventy five in seven weeks. Mm. And I was able to do that, and I was like, cool, challenge accepted. Let's go. And I just reverse engineered it. I said, this is how many pounds a week I have to be averaging. This is what's going to be expected of me. This is the calories I'm bringing in. This is the calories I'm putting out through hard work and discipline. And I'm going to monitor it. And if I need to make adjustments, I'll make adjustments. And guess what? Boom. Got down to 180. And then the day of weigh-ins, I did Epsom salt bass. Got that last five pounds off of me and had all my energy, had all my strength and felt good. And it was, it was just that challenge of knowing most people won't do that because what kills me is you have professional fighters who are getting paid ridiculous amounts of money who miss weight. I, I never understood that. It's and, like, this is what well, you do. Actually, you know, I understand what you just said, Frank, but you know why they do that is because they mentally are weak. They don't want to, they don't want it bad enough mm, because complacency yeah. has crept in. They're not hungry anymore. They the crazy part like, is, hey, you know what? Oh, cool. I'm getting paid this much. If I miss weight, I'm giving up this much of my purse. Right. Eh, I'm doing okay. I don't need that. I plan on winning anyways. Who cares? And they're complacent. And yeah. I, I just looked at it as a, a sign of disrespect. Like somebody else made that commitment. You uphold your, your end of the commitment as well. And that's what I look at. It's the same mindset going through buds. I made a commitment to my nation. Yeah, that's what I thought. I made a commitment to my nation that I was going to be a Navy SEAL because I knew our nation needed more people within the SEAL teams. And I knew this before 9-11 happened. I was in boot camp when 9-11 happened. Yeah, you were just a few days in, right? Day, yeah, sixth day of boot camp and 9-11 happens. And I'm like, check, okay, <laughs> like, here we go. This is crazy. <laughs> like, we're at war, you know, and, um, you know, it was just one of those things. And so that I get to do this mindset came when I was, but it was reiterated by, I'm sorry, reinforced by good leaders like Jocko and other leaders that I had in the SEAL teams. You know, I had really good leaders in the SEAL teams and I had really bad leaders. And I recognize, you know, the qualities in both that I wanted that I didn't want to, to have as an individual. And, um, you know, yeah, it was, it was very unique. It was, it was pretty awesome. And that, that mindset, when you shift over to that, you know, I've worked with a lot of companies since I've been working with Jocko and Leif. I mean, I've been doing this for three and a half, almost four years. And, you know, the, I get to do this mindset. I, I usually get the most feedback from people on this because yeah. they're like, you know, that really, really shifted the way I think. And, you know, I, I'm actually appreciative that I'm going to work, you know, because people are like complaining about their job. Right. And they're like, you know, I'm just not happy. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Hey, remember you get to have a job right now, you know, yep. because remember before coronavirus, everyone was like, blah, blah, blah. And then coronavirus hits and everyone's like, Oh, I don't have work. And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wait, I'm confused because you were saying you hated your job last week, but yeah. now, you wish you had that job. Well, if yeah, you're maybe a little more grateful about the things that you had, you would put a little more effort. You would 
you care more about the outcome of the work that you provide and, and who you're working with. That is such a great perspective that I hope people really listen and take to heart. Uh, earlier, you talked about as a Navy SEAL, you want to go to the most difficult places and, you know, for sustained urban con- combat. That's what you want. Just like we talk. And when I talk to firefighters, I talk about yeah, as a crew, as an engine company or ladder company, you have to want the hardest job on the fire ground and you want it every time because nothing's going to be easy. But your first deployment was not the hardest deployment. Talk about that for a moment. Oh man, it's why why are you why are you trying to get me frustrated right now? No. Because because I want to lead into where it brought oh, I you. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm just teasing. Um because you know, and, and I kind of set that up, painting the picture for the mindset that I had yeah. when we deployed to Iraq my first time. We were we were preparing to do these capture kill missions. That's what we were doing our whole workup to go do, right? And then a couple weeks before we deployed, they said, Hey, you guys are now taking over the personal security detail mission, um, which is PSD, which is keeping the the top dignitaries in Iraq safe. So that was our job. We now were going to keep the top dignitaries in Iraq safe. And the preparation for that was minimal. We didn't work up to do that. We had, we had no training for that. They sent us to a week and a half or two week course with the secret service. And that was it. It was like, cool, cool. You got the base of it. We're going to go over it. What? And so, hey, but guess what? The soldiers and Marines that were over there doing the same thing, they had very minimal training, if not none. It was on-the-job training for some of those guys. And so I was pissed. I had a, I had a really crappy attitude. You know, I'm, I'm 21 years old. I want to be blowing open doors, kicking open doors, shooting bad guys, getting in gunfights like the SEAL teams had been since the war kicked off. And now all of a sudden I'm playing bodyguard for the vice president of Iraq, I, mm. I wasn't happy. That's not what I wanted to be doing. But I recognized through some mentoring, I guess we would say, on the job overseas that I needed to shift my mindset. And, you know, I, I joke, but it was uh, one of the old guys. Um, his nickname is Pepper. And he, uh, he sat me down and had a very blunt conversation with me. And he said, hey, you know, I know you don't want to be doing this job. None of us want to be doing this job, but you have to understand how important this job is and why we're doing this job is because of this, this, and this, right? And he laid it all out. He explained why, you know, and it was really cool. And he, you know, he even said, he's like, Hey man, it's, it's, it's my fault that you don't understand this. And I, I found that very unique. I remember, you know, him taking ownership of that, of saying, you know, Hey, it's my fault that you truly didn't understand this. And, you know, some of the other guys, some of the other new guys had bad attitudes, but I will say mine was probably the worst because I was just so just driven and always wanting to go, go, go. Some of these other guys are good guys, but they were just like, ah, that's fine. I don't mind doing this. And for me, that frustrated me even more. It's like, how do you not want to be going and getting in gunfights? That's what we signed up to do. Right. But they were a little older and they're a little more mature than me. Okay. And so they understood like, Hey, you know, this is part of the job. I'll take the job. You know, it's not that they were scared or not that they didn't want to go do it, but they just understood it better than I did. And so Pepper had this talk with me and he explained to me that I need to shift my mindset or they could send me home or to another area. And it was just like all this, you know, like, Oh no, no, no. Like this is not what, you know, and when I shifted my mindset to like, hey, you know what? You know, because he's like, hey, think about it. We're driving fully armored SUVs. Like we're not in Humvees. We're not in tanks. We're in fully armored SUVs that are climate controlled, right? Mm-hmm. And where we were going with this gentleman, it would be super cold at times. We were going over all over northern Iraq and up into the mountains in the wintertime. Like it gets cold up there, right? And yeah. so we, you know we're getting new gear, you know, it's like, we're low and we're wearing low vis body armor underneath our button ups or our polos with our jackets and, you know, the shoulder holsters at time or the, you know, the hidden holsters. And, and I was like, okay, you know, he's like kind of painting the picture to me. And he's like, Hey, and at the end of the day, this mission is for the greater good of our military. And that's what our job is to do. I said, well, you use, you used such a great word earlier and the words, a simple one that's used a lot, but I don't think it's understood. You said he explained why. 
Oh, the why. The why. How important is the why to understanding the mission and helping it's people buy into it? And what, what a lot of people and leaders fail to do is they just tell their people what they need to go do. And they might give them like a little bit of like, hey, this is what you need to go doing because. And they'll give them a little because. But most leaders fail to deliver and reiterate the why. Mm. And saying this is why we're doing what we're doing. And when you give somebody the why, it allows them to start helping come up with ideas on how you're going to do that. And when you give somebody the why and you allow them to help come up with the how, what did you give them? You gave them ownership. Gave them ownership. When, when somebody has ownership over a plan, it's really hard to complain about that plan, right? Absolutely, because they helped come up with it. Yeah, hey, you can't complain about something that you came up with. I mean, yeah, I guess you could, but you, you could be frustrated with yourself, but you're not going to complain to the team. Because that was your plan. That was your idea. You helped contribute to that. And so good leaders don't just give people what, but they give them the how and help them develop. I'm sorry, they give them the why to help them develop the how. And when he did that with me, it made sense. It shifted my mindset. And I was like, cool, all right, you know what? We're going to make the best of this. I'm going to do my job. And at the end of the day, remember what my parents taught me. It doesn't matter if you don't like the job, you're going to work hard. You're going to work, you're going to outwork everybody else. You're, you're going to be a good example to, to others. And, uh, and that was, I just needed a little recalibration. I need a little bit of a conversation. Um, you know, that was my immaturity coming out and, you know, it, it was good after that time. Like I, you know, really tried to focus on, you know, being a good team member. Um, you know, just trying to be quiet and listen and, you know, do my job. Uh, and, you know, so we, we shifted through that and then that's when Jocko came in, when we came home, he came in as our task unit commander and, you know, it was a completely different ball game. We were like, Hey, we're going to the wild, wild west. And you called Ramadi the best and the worst of yeah. times of your life. Yeah. Ramadi absolutely was, you know, the SEAL teams in general as a whole, that chapter of my life. And it was a chapter and my big problem when I transitioned out of the military is I, I, I couldn't close that chapter, even mm. though I left the military and I chose to get out. I kept trying to get back into that chapter and still live in that chapter and allow, you know, and, and, and in hopes that something would, would spark. Right. And I, I would be back there again because yeah. combat and, and the SEAL teams made sense to me. Training uh, SEALs to go to war makes sense to me. I enjoy that. I love that. I mm. could legitimately do that every day for the rest of my life and be okay with it. And we didn't make good money in the military. So obviously it wasn't a money thing. It was a true love of the job. It was a true passion for what we were doing. Um, but yeah, Ramadi was, you know, some of the most amazing joyful, I would even say loving days of my life. Yeah. Some of the most horrific, dark, just demonic days of my life as well. Because the enemy that we were fighting was straight from hell. They were demonic. They were horrible human beings that did horrible things to good, innocent people that wanted just to be able to live a normal life, just like we live, right? And they want these innocent Iraqi families, you know, they want what we want. They want their kids to be able to go to school. They want to be able to go to the market. They want to be able to go to work. They want to be able to, you know, build up their house. They want, they want to do what we do. And they weren't able to because these insurgent fighters would come in and do horrible and evil things to them if they didn't comply with what they wanted them to do. They would rape mm -hmm. and torture and murder families if they didn't allow them to do what they needed to do. And they had complete control over that area. They actually flew their flag over the capital of Ramadi. And the 
the good days were, you know, the times that I think were, you know, I'm sitting up on a rooftop and I'm looking over at, you know, Mikey and, you know, we're just, we're just laughing, you know, and I just, there's so many times I just, whenever I think about the good times, like I look at, you know, and I won't, some of most of these guys are still in, some of them are out, you know, obviously Seth and Mikey have both passed away, but, you know, you just look over across the rooftop and Seth would be leaning against the wall and, you know, he had a little shade structure and he had his helmet on kind of crooked and he's looking at the battle map and he's working the radio and then our medics over in the other section on his sniper rifle, you know, providing his overwatch and, you know, Mikey's right next to me because he was my security gunner and we would just sit and we would talk, right? And we would be on our guns scanning and he'd be on his periscope scanning and we would just be talking about, you know, our families back home, about how he wanted to travel the world and, you know, we would get back to the, the, the blown out building that we lived in. It was an old blown out building that was built up with sandbags and plywood to make walls and, and the floor for us to live in there and we worked with these awesome marines and soldiers that lived out of that same building and um you know we'd get back and we would watch this show called the thirsty traveler right and so mikey had that little dvd series and we would watch that we'd talk about traveling and you know we'd go work out together myself and another one of my close friends i called the badger uh he's still in and you know he's an older guy that i really looked up to that i really respected and i still look up to and respect him to this day and it's just you know we'd be sitting on a cot next to each other just bullshitting just talking right and just getting ready to watch you know some tv series to, to buy a little bit of time before we try to go to sleep you know we try to just shut things off before we catch some sleep and you know there's many times that we we slept on rooftops for a time right and you'd leave to go out on an overwatch with you know water bottles in your rucksack frozen and by 9 a.m they're defrosted and by 10, 11 a.m., that water's warm. So you're drinking warm water all throughout the day. And we bring protein powder out with us and try to supplement the food that we had. And you're drinking warm protein shakes from the top of a rooftop when it's 110 degrees. And yeah, you know, stuff like that, you know, most people are like, oh, that's miserable. No, it was pretty cool. It was, it was pretty cool. It was good. It was hard living that we thrived off of because of the guys that we were surrounded next to. And, and I was, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and it's just, it's, it's hard to not be able to call Seth anymore to mm-hmm. talk about Ramadi, to talk about my deployment to Afghanistan after that. And just to see how he's doing because he legitimately was by my side from SQT until the day I got out of the military. And even when I, after Ramadi, I got pulled from that task unit because I had surgery and I wasn't going to be able to do a workup and deploy. And that's when Seth took over as a task unit commander. And that was probably the hardest thing was I was no longer working with Seth. And I knew where they were deploying. They were deploying to Solder City and we knew it was really bad over there and the guilt from not being on that deployment is something i deal with every single day and you know we talked about it after they came home and he's like bro it's no big deal you know the guy i just felt this guilt you know and mike sorelli was there chris kyle was there and these are guys that i had fought alongside and worked alongside for years and then you know it's been two and a half years you know, well, shit, this September will be three years from when Seth passed away. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's what I think is hard to deal with is, is the memory of these guys that you lose that you're so close with. And when you share their stories, you relive those memories and you feel those feelings again. But that's important to do because what you can't do is not share those stories and you have to keep them alive. And even if it creates pain or if it brings back memories, whether it's good or bad, that is something that I think is healthy for humans to be able to work through. And at the end of the day, 
it's not about you. It's about them. It's about keeping their legacy alive. They made the ultimate sacrifice. And so you need to be able to work through your shit and continue to share their stories, continue to share their lessons and their legacy so that other people can try to live their lives to honor them. And that's the thing that I try to do every day is just live my life to honor them. That's one of the things I absolutely love about all the Navy SEALs. It seems like that is something you're also passionate about. I know in the fire service, one of the things that, that we really try to do is honor our people when they're living through, whether it be an award ceremony, retirement ceremonies, you see uh, the retirement ceremony, you know, interesting because everybody sees the firefighter funerals, but few people see, um, the retirement ceremonies uh, and the respect we have for each other. And you guys certainly have that. I was going to ask you, because I only have time uh, to cover one more thing. And I was going to ask you uh, what the American flag means to you. And it sounds like you just answered that. But, um, but I wanted to ask you anyway, what does the American flag mean to you? Um, I mean, the American flag means everything to me. And I, try to explain this to people. I don't think I do a good job. Um, but to me at my core, it means everything because it means the freedoms that I've been given. And I know how lucky I am to live in this country because I've seen countries all across the world where people would try to give us their kids. Think about that. There are, Mm. there are people out there that try to give their kids away to strangers in hopes that their kids can have a better life, knowing that they would come back to the United States with us. And when I, when I look at an American flag, I think about my grandfathers who served in World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War. I think about my aunts and uncles who served in Desert Storm, who have fought in Iraq, who have fought in Afghanistan. I think about Mikey's casket being covered in an American flag as we flew him home from Iraq. I think about Mark Lee being covered in an American flag as we all lined up and saluted him one last time as he was being loaded up onto a helicopter for his angel flight. You know, I think about the sacrifice that so many Americans have made to make this nation great. And we're not a perfect nation, but I can promise you we are the absolute best nation out there. And that American flag represents every one of us. And the awesome thing about the American flag is it doesn't care about your skin color. It doesn't care about your sex, your religion, your beliefs. It allows us to have freedoms to express all those things. And if it wasn't for that flag, we wouldn't be in a position where people can go and protest and they can go and do the crazy things that people are doing right now and actually get away with it. You do that in other countries, you will be killed. Mm. You will absolutely be killed. And so the American flag to me truly represents everything because it gives, it means that I am in a country where I can go and do whatever I want to better my life. I have the true freedom to make the most out of every single day. I have the ability to wake up with the mindset that I'm going to live my life to honor that flag and to honor my fallen brothers. You know, I think you actually did a great job explaining what it means. JP Denell, thank you so much. I honestly, I feel I can talk to you for another two hours. I wish I had two hours. So thank you so much. Thank you. I I appreciate you. Um, And, you know, how can people get in contact with you and Echelon Front? Uh, So, yeah, uh, at, uh, on social media, it's at Echelon Front. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N. F-R-O-N-T.com. So echelonfront.com is our website. And then at echelonfront on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I am at JP Donnell. So at J-P-D-I-N-N-E-L-L. That is... My, I guess, what do you call it? Social media handle? <laughs> I guess so. Chris would know. He, he, Chris is the youngest one. And actually, we have another one that's even younger. So they would know those answers. I yeah, don't know. Whatever that is called, that's what I am on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and then 
you know, if people want to get a little more information on what we do at Echelon Front, I, I go to the website. You know, you can see all the different yeah. instructors. Um, and, you know, ExtremeOwnership.com has information on the musters. And then EF Online, so EF as in Echelon Front, online.com is our online leadership program that we have where we're doing a lot of interaction with our members every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we actually do a live training via zoom for all of our members with Jocko and Leif. They lead the training and um, you know, and then the other instructors are there chiming in and we're building out a platform to where we're actually going to be able to interact with the members and have a forum. And so it's, that's absolutely amazing. Um, we reduce the pricing from where it was or cause we did it over a year ago, but we never mm-hmm. advertised it. <laughs> and cause we just wanted to have it built up and then coronavirus happened. We're like, okay, hey, people need online stuff. We just launched it, and it's uh, it's been a really good opportunity. But, um, yeah, any of those places, you guys can reach out if um, there's something I can do or if you guys have questions. Um, just, yes, the best I would say is probably Instagram. Uh, send me a message, and, um, yeah, I'd love to connect with you guys. And, I, I, you know, thank you for allowing me to be on your podcast. Thank you for your service, and thank you for the service of every service member, um, first responder, firefighter, uh, that's out there listening to this podcast. We have the ultimate and utmost respect for what you guys do because you guys do it every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, we would do a workup to go deploy for six months. You guys do it every single day. And so your burden is, is a heavy burden and you cannot allow training to not be a number one priority in your life because that training is going to prepare you for these horrible situations. And the, the, what you guys do is very unique. You want the absolute worst scenarios, but you pray it never happens because that means it's that something so bad true. to somebody else, right? And so that's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a strange dichotomy that you guys live in. It's the same with us. Trust me, I love getting in gunfights. It's awesome. I love that. But that means that there's evil people doing horrible mm-hmm. things to people out there. And I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want chaos. I don't want war to exist in our world, but it's a reality, unfortunately. And so you have to understand how important your training is going to be to prepare you to be the person that's going to keep your team members safe. And that's what you guys do. Thank you. On that note, I appreciate you. And thanks for sharing those words with us and have a great day. Thank you. You as well, Frank. Have a wonderful day. 